Much of what we learn about science, nature, and the environment happens outside of school and beyond the walls of museums, zoos, and nature centers. I have worked as an independent environmental professional for many years and know there are others like me who interact with the public in communities worldwide. On the Talaterra podcast, we discover who these professionals are, what they do, and how they create change. Why do I focus on independent professionals? I focus on them because they move freely through communities. They move freely between schools, organizations, businesses, programs, and other informal learning environments. They are positioned to meet the public where they are, and this is powerful. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Tanya Marion. Hello and welcome to the Talatera Podcast. Today I share with you part one of a two-part episode. My conversation with the founders of Experiential Interpretive Design was rich and far-reaching and could not be contained to one episode. In this episode, we meet the co-founders of Experiential Interpretive Design, Bill Reynolds, Lars Wollers, and Mike Mayer. Collectively, they have many years of experience in interpretation and experience design and bring to EID the experiences they gained through various roles in tourism, planning, heritage interpretation, and environmental education. Today, we'll learn about the founders and why they started EID Coaching. We also discuss what's working in the field of interpretation and what's not working. In part two of this episode, which will air later this week, I sit down with Mike Mayer to learn more about the environmental education program that inspires the work that he, Bill, and Lars do at EID. Let's join the conversation. Bill, Lars, and Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm grateful for Bill for telling me about experiential interpretive design. We met during a round robin session, and he told me about all of the work that you do. Collectively, you have many years of experience in the field of interpretation and experience design, and you've come to the field in different ways. And so I would love for you to take a moment to introduce yourself and your respective backgrounds. So Bill, if we can begin with you, and then we'll go to Lars and then to Mike. Certainly. Thanks, Tanya. Uh, first of all, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge that I live on ancestral lands located within Treaty 6 territory. And um, that's a home and it's a gathering place. And it's also a traveling route for Cree, Blackfoot, Salto, Dene and Nakota Sioux. And also I'm in region four, uh, what's called the Métis homeland. So who am I? You asked. Uh, I'm a Canadian and I'm living in Alberta on the edge of the boreal forest and the Aspen parkland, just in a transition zone. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a grandfather. I'm a naturalist and I'm a curiosity catalyst. I've had a varied career path for about 45 years that were pre- experiential interpretive design and uh, the last five years have, have sort of been uh, that's where we've been dovetailing into an experiential interpretive design and our, our new partnership. Uh, I've always created and uh, planned and designed visitor experiences no matter what was my career path. I've been a frontline naturalist, a park interpreter at a national park and at a, at a world heritage site and also at a nature center. I've been a visitor services manager for our capital city park, recreation park, uh, where I was not only involved with interpretation, but also special event management, uh, cultural animation, and in charge of marketing, all the programming. Then I went down a sort of a, a different path and I got heavily involved in tourism. I was employed by the provincial government, our provincial Alberta government. And that's where I went down sort of a business planning, feasibility analysis, a facility site design pathway, and I eventually became the director of development and enhancement for heritage attractions in the province. And then I kind of dealt with a little bit of trendy stuff that was uh, agricultural tourism and culinary tourism. So any new trends, um, I was uh, responsible for developing. So that's that's me in a nutshell for now. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Lars, can you tell us about your background and a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, once again, thank you very much, for Tanya, for, for having us. I'm, um, I'm Lars Wullers. I come from northern Germany. And actually, the bond between Bill, Mike, and me is that we all are members, longtime members in the Institute for Earth Education, an international nonprofit organization, which also has a branch in the field of interpretation and interpretive mm-hmm. design. And um, so that's what kind of brought us together. And because of our special interest in interpretation, we founded EID, the Experiential Interpretive Design Network. Um, myself, I, uh, as a child, we lived in the Near East, in Iran, for during my childhood. We traveled a lot there, and uh, it's a beautiful area. Unluckily, it's not possible, really, to, for a lot of people to travel there now. But my parents kind of um, planted the travel seed in me, and uh, I'm, I very much love these uh, gems of the earth, uh, natural and cultural heritage. So I started in the field of um, of uh, natural interpretation, working in national parks uh, in various places, um, in Chile, in, uh, in the U.S., in Germany, and in, in England. Uh, in the beginning, I almost killed a troop of tourists because um, uh, there were no regulations. There was no, no training, nothing. You just went out and, and did it. And uh, so I led a group in into sea fog in the Warden Sea, and we had a hard time finding back. But finally, we managed, and I'm really glad. So glad. So nobody re- really died. Uh, I studied uh, cultural applied science. I then went into the field of environmental communication and did my PhD in in interpretation, which I did for 12 years. Uh, and now, since 20 years, I'm a self-employed consultant, uh, working mostly in Germany, but also in various European fields with protected areas, uh, zoos and wildlife parks, museums, botanical gardens, uh, and so forth. And since this year, I'm also back uh, part-time at a university, uh, again, the field of tourism, where I can um, mainly work uh, regarding my interests in, in interpretation. Basically, that's me, I think, in a nutshell. Well, hi. Uh, thanks, Tanya, uh, for having having us on today. Uh, my name is Mike Mayer. I'm living in Tucson, Arizona currently and been here for many years and living on the ancestral lands of the uh, Tohono O'odham and the Pasquayaki indigenous peoples who still live in this area and are very much involved in the community. And uh, it's the Sonoran Desert here in, in the southwest of, of the United States is just an amazing place to be. Nothing like where I grew up. And, and I guess I've, if I was going to really tell you how I got involved, I would have to go back and start when I was a boy growing up in central Kentucky. Uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors especially at summer camps, and we had a lot of open space around us. And I just fell in love with, with the outdoors and with nature. And, and as I grew up, I, I realized, you know, I would really like to do more with this. And I ended up getting a, a degree in psychology and elementary education and went on to graduate school to get a degree in environmental education administration and interpretive services administration. And I had was greatly influenced by a couple of people. One was Steve Van Meter. And when I was working at, uh, uh, at a summer camp, the director said, well, this year you're going to run the nature program. And I went, great. I, I don't like the way anybody else had run it before. I thought it was pretty boring collecting things and, you know, just naming things. And he said, well, here, I think you'll really like this book. And he handed me the book called Acclimatization, which uh, was the first book to come out through the Institute for Earth Education. They have a series of others. But I went, wow, I can do this. We can have fun. We can go out and just explore, pick up muck, look at things, wade in the water, get up into the trees. And uh, it really got me excited. And that, you know, it's kind of led to how do we build that kind of excitement in education in general, in environmental education, 
and in, in, in interpretive, the field of interpretation, uh, when people go to visit, um, you know, uh, parks, when they go to visit zoos, when they go to visit historic uh, recognition sites, preservation sites. So um, Steve Van Meter was really very instrumental in, in how I developed this, this um, um, I don't know, almost a need <laughs> to really get people excited about where they are excited about the sense of place where they are and what may uh, be offered at the particular place, both land, history, art, whatever it may happen to be. So I've, I've spent, well, many years in public education, kindergarten through university. I've also worked in environmental education, uh, did a lot of work in earth education, with some international work and uh, leading workshops. And I have done some interpretive work in the past with, with Steve and another group called Sycamore Associates. So that's, that's kind of my background on, in terms of getting here today. These are all just wonderful experiences and all the information and the knowledge that you bring to EID. Uh, which is, again, for listeners who just joining, is Experiential Interpretive Design, which we'll refer to as EID throughout the, our conversation. How did the three of you come together to start EID? What was that conversation like? Well, as, as Lars mentioned earlier, it was uh, the fact that the three of us had all been involved with the Institute for Earth Education and um, a book came out by Steve Van Meter, who's the chairman of the Institute, called Interpretive Design, The Dance of Experience. And that book was revolutionary. And uh, it was uh, chock full of innovative ideas. And it really captured a lot of what I was feeling was missing in the field. Let me go back a, a story. Um, so you realize I was in the tourism field for quite a long time, tourism development and enhancement field. And so I'd been kind of out of interpretation for a while. So 10 years ago, when I was getting close to retirement, I uh, was still dabbling in, in tourism business coaching on the side, in, knowing that I was going to be retiring soon. And I was kind of consulting, but then I realized that I was really more coaching on that side. At the same time, I was missing something. Uh, I, I enjoyed the coaching side of working with uh, clients and trying to help them improve their business from a visitor experience perspective. But I was really, I'm a museum visitor center junkie. And so uh, that's how I started uh, my career in interpretation. And so I was missing that. I was craving it. And then um, I reread the book that Steve put out because he actually, it's been out for 20 years. And so at that same time, I joined associations and in interpretation. I uh, read the literature, started reading the literature again. I went to conferences and I was kind of disturbed a little bit that I didn't see much growth uh, since the 70s. And I still saw people being uh, so focused on improving their communication ability about storytelling and, you know, being presenters and I thought when I read Steve's book again, he just nailed so many things that uh, we're talking about how do we get interpreters to really have a key role to play as opposed to being on the side and as opposed to being kind of considered peripheral, right, to the old, the whole planning of a visitor experience. They were seen as to come in at the end um, and they would do a program and an exhibit and they would do a presentation and uh, Steve really nailed down that the foundation of interpretation was about a holistic visitor. Um, and it was about uh, the total visitor journey and the total visitor experience. And then interpreters had a key role to play in all of that. So that's kind of what got me going. And uh, um, I can't remember if it was then first talking to Mike, um, because we, we had been communicating, you know, every so often along the way, uh, about, uh, environmental education, 
uh, not so much interpretation. And uh, then I think Lars had a connection with Mike. And so Mike was maybe the key person that linked the, the, the two of us together. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so I'll pass it over to, to Lars to, to add on anything from his perspective from, cause I think at the time you were, you were a professor, right? You were in the evaluation and academic side of things. Yeah. Well, um, um, first of all, I just love this field. I just love to have, uh, real world, uh, live firsthand experiences, uh, and especially in those, awesome places like i mentioned in national parks uh, in these different uh, natural landscapes in special worldwide unique um, heritage uh, cultural heritage sites um, like world heritage places it's just uh, marvelous and uh, i believe it becomes even more important these days because so many people are especially really the younger generation is kind of uh, tied to this little uh, device called smartphone or a computer so i think to to get people out there to have some true experience uh, with all their senses um uh, I think it's, uh, it's an even more important task than ever. And if you look at the figures um, during my time at the university, it's not so easy. But if you if you manage to gather uh, numbers on uh, how many people uh, come to these places, it's just amazing. So, for example, just for Germany, zoos, 70 million people. Europe, Europe-wide, uh, the zoos, 140 million people. Uh, overall in Germany, in museum protected areas, uh, zoos and so forth, these places, um, I estimate that we have a conservative estimation, more than 200 million people to which we can reach out to to help them uh, enjoy more and uh, understand better and uh, take away something valuable that uh, they can remember when they get back and uh, that maybe even helps them and to to connect with uh, knowledge later on and with experiences they have. So there are so many reasons I think these places are especially important. And last but not least, because as the term says, they are uh, often they are our heritage places. Um, there is this uh, great film called The Monument Men with um, Brad Pitt and some other American actress, I don't know, but um, Monument Man, it's really, it's about a true little seven men group uh, that went during the Second World War to Europe to to try and protect uh, cultural uh, heritage that was um, stolen uh, by the Nazis at that time. Um, and they managed uh, to save quite a bit and... Uh, I think this is one example why uh, that that very strongly shows why protecting our heritage is so important. All of you have mentioned so some connection to the Institute for Earth Education. Can you tell us about the institute and how is it the same and different from the environmental education we tend to encounter today? Well, uh, the Institute for Earth Education uh, was founded back in the 1970s. Uh, originally, uh, uh, the programs were designed for a uh, summer residential camp for boys, and it had a series of kind of, kind of as I explained, you know, uh, uh, talking about myself, the the director of of the nature program was like, you know, collecting leaves, you know, pithing frogs, uh, pinning insects is not what we want these campers to leave with. We want them to leave with a rich firsthand experience with the natural world, an emotional connection that, you know, these are the systems of life that keep us alive and all life alive on the earth. And and they're just amazing. And then uh, some better understandings of how those uh, systems of life better operate, how they operate in our lives on a day-to-day basis. So first making that emotional connection and uh, then more of the understandings and then how to 
incorporate those understandings and those feelings into your daily life so you can live in more harmony with the earth and its systems of life and other creatures uh, uh, on the earth. So um, that's kind of the heartbeat of earth education and the Institute for Earth Education. Now, environmental education is a little bit different in the sense that it often got um, influenced by where was the money and um, what can we do to make sure that we can incorporate what maybe grants or funders or even government funding wants us to do so we can utilize that money to continue to exist. There were, there were some change, and obviously on the political level, there were massive changes in the 1970s. The, uh, uh, the uh, Endangered Species Act was created in the 1970s. The Environmental Protection Agency, the first Earth Days, um, and yet it seems like we have not been able to capitalize on that because if you look at where we are now, after what almost sixty years of environmental education, we're almost in more shape than we were before because of climate change. There are definitely some silo areas that are better. Water is cleaner. There's no doubt about it. Air is cleaner. We are more aware of endangered species. But our level of consumption, our level of unconcern about many of our actions is still at a, I, I would say, a record high level. So Earth Education really tried to, uh, through development of, of uh, well-crafted programs, not just activities, but programs to help incorporate those better uh, uh, understandings, better, deeper feelings, and how to incorporate those. Um, and that takes time. It's not just a one-day thing. It's not just an hour at a nature center. This has to take place over time. And much of our public education, much of our uh, 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 interpretive, many of our interpretive sites, and even many of our nature centers and environmental centers, you know, they have people for one day, they take them on a hike, they show them some things, and then they go home. Okay. How do they prepare them for that? What outcome do they want? And how are they going to use that information afterwards? And that is that piece, that afterwards piece, I think has been really missing in environmental education and the longevity. How do we whether you're learning to play piano or tennis, you know, you go through specific steps to learn how to do that, a programmatic approach. And that has not been what environmental education has done. It has developed a series of activities that they felt like teachers or leaders could do on a short-term basis. And Earth Education has tried to say, we have a three-day program that has things that are going to happen afterwards at home at school, or we have a five-day program, things that are going to happen and incorporate into your life. So I think that's the big difference. The infusion method was used uh, by environmental education, and the programmatic method is used more by earth education. In part two of this episode, Mike and I have a conversation about the Institute for Earth Education. And Mike will walk us through an example of an Earth Institute program. Today, though, our focus is on experiential interpretive design. When we spoke er earlier, Bill, you mentioned there needs to be less show and tell and more share and do. How do you do more share and do when... Would you work at a visitor-serving organization, and especially in, a, in an environment that is a free-choice learning environment where people don't have to pay attention to you, right? They can just kind of walk past you. How do you do more share and do with the limited amount of time that you have with a guest, with a visitor? Well, I don't know if Lars wants to jump in first. Yeah, I think um, what you said is just is already the explanation. So people have a very little time. They have very little um, um, 
they don't really focus and concentrate. Uh, so attacks are becoming less and less. Uh, so the idea of having an academic approach, um, we, 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 there is just a proof all over the world it is not working. So um, that's already a reason why we have to look for another approach. Um, and then I th uh, we believe that the experiential approach to interpretation supports uh, the motivations why people are coming to these places because they want to have a good experience. They want to have a strong experience. That's why you have all these uh, organizations out there where you can hire um, some construction vehicles to drive around or to jump out of a with a, with a parachute or to go diving or so. So, so people are looking for strong experiences. And we believe that it's, uh, it's worth not confronting them with a lot of so-called knowledge, but right away to start providing them with the tools of uh, enjoying and of uh, engaging in an experience. So, you know, if we want them to look at, let's say, a flock of birds, yeah, instead of talking about these birds, uh, we would provide them with binoculars and we would show them how to use them because a lot of people don't know how to use binoculars. And where's the best spot from which to uh, to watch the birds? What's the best time? And um, maybe you would have some little incentives uh, if, if people do so. So I think there are lots of reasons on uh, what you, um, why we need to do this and how we can do this. Just a short story. Some years ago, I attended uh, um, an academic meeting in a zoo, one of our large zoos here in Germany, and the director himself, he took us around. And at some point, he's, he stopped and said, this is the best spot for me in the whole zoo. You just have a great view in this immersive, uh, over this immersive cage with various African uh, animals. And I thought, yeah, it's true. It's really a nice lookout. So the group left, and but I, I hold on, held on to him and asked, uh, you know, are people doing this? Because it's really now this lookout. And he said, oh, no, 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 hardly anybody does it. So then I asked, so what do you think? Why? And, you know, and, and this is, it's a bit hard, but he said, you know what? 80% of our visitors are complete idiots. So that's that was his attitude. And I used this example with my students to ask them, okay, let's take two minutes, come up with ideas. What can we do to uh, engage visitors, to motivate them, to activate them, to have this look? And they come up with, let's put a bench here. Let's put a binocular here. Let's put a panel here. Uh, let's have special feeding times. Uh, let's have a little tower on which they can climb and so forth and so forth. So lots, a lot of these things don't even cost or they don't cost a fortune. But, you know, thinking about this, thinking, caring about the experience of the visitor the same way these people care about the animals or other um, artifacts they they are taking yeah. care Let of. Let me just, and I'm going to add on to that just a little uh, uh, example of, Ford, if you were to, uh, let's say there was this really interesting uh, area of mushrooms, your, your park or this trail had a great variety of mushrooms and they were relatively easy to see close to the path. So now you have an option of like putting up a sign and talking about all the different, you know, like the species the different types of uh, mushrooms that they'd be there and blah, blah, blah. Or you actually say, okay, now do I want them to engage and interact with these wonderful organisms that happen to have the name mushroom, which doesn't for most people that, and there's a lot of things that people uh, that are fun, they're fungi, but they're not mushrooms, but it's, they're, they're amazing too. So for example, you want to actually get people to do something Okay, like we said, more sharing and doing. So the idea is that you direct them. Uh, there's a magnifying lens and hanging 
close by or you get it out to a little kit that they take on the on the mushroom trail and so the doing is that uh the encouragement is to use the magnifying glass to explore the mushroom great explorations um and uh there they will then, and then maybe you have some uh, what we call guided discovery about you know not only look at the surface of the cap of the mushroom or the or the little stem but how about a dental mirror also in addition to the magnifying lens so you can actually look underneath that mushroom and you go what are you seeing you don't tell them yet anything right this could be a guided trip it could be self-guided right you can do it through questioning through signage instead of just facts 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 right so that's a little example about how do you turn um, talking to doing you think about okay the it's all about or and it's to a certain degree, you can use questioning too. Uh, but what you want to do is, is get people to do something. So, um, you know, what do you see around the base of trees? And then maybe they have to record or they have to draw or they have to, but they're doing something, right? Instead of saying, these are mosses around the, you know, the moss does this and the blah, blah, blah. You haven't got any engagement yet because you're telling, you know, the focus is not what they're interested in. It's what you're interested in telling them. So. And Steve really captured that well. So, um, and and I think it's, I, I think it's basically, a, it's actually a very old idea, because there is this saying of I don't know if Steve came up with it, somebody else, but it goes, it says, um, um, you learn with something in your hand, um, which means we, it's learning by doing, you know. So instead of providing people with uh, some digital media in exhibitions um, and a lot of text and a lot of talking, we should provide them much more with um, something they can uh, they can do. And um, so th this we find in alternative uh, educational approaches as well. For example, with Mar Maria Montessori. And Maria Montessori teaches... Um, in these schools, they teach kids uh, even grammar, so something you would consider to be very dry academic stuff. But they teach them grammar with the help of uh, colored geometrical um, forms they can touch and use to uh, put sentences together. Or they learn counting by little bullets which they put on a string and they bring more and more of these little um, pearls together. And in the end, uh, after some time when they have a feeling for larger numbers, the teacher rolls in a huge block of pearls, which is the size of one million pearls, you know. So they get a real sensation of what it means to have one pearl as opposed to one million instead of just writing it on the wall. I'm going to jump on something too that we were talking about because uh, um, again, we're talking about the how of things and uh, that's important, but so often uh, interpreters, when we're trying to deal with planning and that's what a lot of our focus is about designing and planning from the front end so that the messages that we're interested in, or the site is interested in transferring to people and the experiences they want people to have, all of that is, we have to deal with the, uh, the, the what we call the 4-H component of the visitor. So it's not just the concepts and the head stuff. It's about the heart. It's about the emotional things. And it's about the hands, which is Lars just been talking about. That's the physical side. And then there's this, you know, the hunger side, which is, this is what Steve talks about, the fact that there are uh, food and beverage components and there's a social component around that, that uh, interpreters have a role in. So the total design of the visitor journey when they're on your site can be reinforced at every juncture from the parking lot to the pathway to the exhibit, it's not just at the exhibits. It's not just at the presentation. Interpreters don't come in at the, you know, at that point. Once everything has been built, um, they shouldn't. I mean, they do, but they shouldn't. And that's that was what Steve really captured was that the the function of interpretation uh, needs to be thought of. They need to have a seat at the table right at the beginning before you know the whole place is is designed, and uh, and they need to be thinking of, of a total visitor the total journey 
and the total visitor, that it's not just about stuff going in their head. And that's what why I said the, the, the focus is still too much on in communication and being a good communicator. Uh, it's about being a good coach. Uh, and that's why we've taken on the whole concept of coaching rather than consulting. And that's a whole other discussion on its own. Okay, so I have a design question here. Lars, I saw that one of the services that your company provides, your agency provides, is trade show construction. And and it made me think of when I, with my previous endeavor, I used to do a lot of community events. And when I started, I would ask people, how do you set up your booth? I received a lot of blank looks as if, you know, and I interpret it as being, well, you know, there's there's not much you can do with the booth. And I thought, well, no, that, did, that answer didn't sit well with me. So when I saw that you provide insight into trade show construction, I thought, oh, okay, I have to ask, how do you, all of these wonderful things about the visitor experience, you know, in that type of a setting in a community festival or in a trade show setting, you've really got people just walking past you. They don't even need to even glance at you. Um, how to design with intent something that might be inviting outside of always trying to start a conversation with whoever happens to be walking past you? Yeah. Uh, while you were talking, uh, you mentioned one of uh, the main the main uh, aspects we need to take much more into consideration, and that's the invitation. So in interpretive design, we consider this very, very strongly. So instead of having a booth and waiting for people to stop, uh, especially at a, because it's not a standalone booth, uh, there are lots of booths, so lots of things that might uh, distract people from your booth. Um, so why should they stop? Uh, and another author, uh, John Viverka, he, in his book, he, he, he said his law number one is, why would the visitor want to know this? So if you would ask yourself, why would the visitor come to, to your booth? Uh, so that's one question. And um, that also uh, implies that uh, we should think much more outside of the box, you know. Um, thinking outside of the box means that, uh, for example, with a booth, I vividly remember, I'm, I'm not encouraging this for uh, animal protection reasons, but, but I... I, I saw this company that provides the service of having flies um, con uh, con um, they are connecting uh, hair thin um, ro ropes kind of thing with a little paper to flies and these flies are circulating on the trade show then and people get irritated what's this and then they come across this little paper and they you know, they start reading a little message. So, so that's one approach. And you know that there are lots of, um, of uh, innovative approaches on how to attract people. And it also brings me to the question, why would you want a booth to start with? Because uh, the main reason would be if, uh, if some, someone, whoever has a booth, uh, this idea of, of trying to present something on this uh, trade show, The first question is, why do you want to do this and who do you want to reach out for? And maybe then a guided walk. Uh, no, how do you say this? Um, a walking walking event, but but somebody who's oh, uh, okay. in a costume, for example. Do you know, uh, why don't you dress oh, up with what yeah, you want to convey? Uh, and something that, like that. And then... Um, you know, attract people by uh, the special uh, appearance you have instead of having uh, a booth that's sitting at a particular place, immobile, and people have to come to you. And you were talking about engaging with the community, right? So that would be a starting point for me to start thinking and asking you, what do you mean by engaging with the community? So what part of the community do you want to engage for what reason? And if you have um, answers to that, um, and there should be an intense discussion on what are you really looking for, then it becomes to start. Uh, it starts becoming interesting because uh, 
more than often you you get to very easily to very uh, innovative, attractive, uh, and fun uh, activities or installations um, you can use instead of simply, let's say, you know, simply having a booth. And to finalize this before Bill can jump in. Um, the director, uh, the director of a major visitor center, now of one of our national parks. So, so they have one million visitors um, passing through their doors every year. When I consulted them, at some point he interrupted me, and he was he was really surprised, and he said, "You know what, Mr. Wallace, you're the first consultant ever to ask me what are your outcomes." Who are your target groups? So almost all other uh, consultants, uh, and I know that most of them, they just come from the latest museum fair and they offer you the most trendy stuff they've seen. You know, oh, this is a real nice digital thing. And it also does something interactive, you know, but they don't start out where we should start out. So what are your um, whys? What are, what's your what and what's your who? Um, and then how can we get yeah. there? Who's it for? What's it for? Is I'm giving Lars a, a exactly. double yeah. thumbs yeah. up. Thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I remember the walking act. So these walking acts, yeah. So, so that kind of approach, I think it's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, you can do a lot with that. So that is a, a very good idea. And, you know, with as a vendor, um, as you're there to participate as a with a booth, you don't have control over the layout. You don't have control over who's next to you. And a lot of the time you are thinking on your feet because sometimes the spot isn't what you were expecting it to be. <laughs> exactly, Tanya. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, this uh, reminds me of a of a great example, which is also uh, to be read in Steve's book, Interpretive Design. It's it was just great because. I brought him in in the, in the 90s uh, to help me with a consultation with an interpretive plan for a visitor center in the in our, one of our uh, um, North Sea, Wadden Sea National Parks, so right at the coastline. So there we were in this information center, an ugly name to start with. Nobody wants to go to an information center. So we were in there and um, the director said, you know, one important task here is uh, that on really strong days we have in the summer we have like 200 250 visitors coming to our exhibition while at the same time a couple of thousand are out there on the beach so what can we do to attract more people to come in and steve's idea and it's really great and there's a very funny uh, illustration from the concept back then in this book he invented the Birdman. So he said, we don't expect people to come in. We go out. So he, he invited this, uh, this little crazy uh, guy, uh, a bird watcher, who pulls a very weird uh, shack behind him with lots of stuff from the Wadden Sea, uh, natural items on it and so forth. And ha it had a little tower on this, um, on this push cart. I think you say. Uh, so he would climb on the, he would be supposed to, be, to climb on this tower and, you know, give some little presentations from up there, some fun presentations, but also to engage people, last but not least, to come to the exhibition. You know, he, he would give a handout free entrance tickets. The exhibition is free anyway, but kids would love it. Um, so so th there were lots of ideas to just motivate people to get there, uh, to come, and also to um, to get across some of the messages uh, they had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that the point that Lars made about knowing the why and knowing the who and what. Top three things, and we always jump to the how. And that's what um, interpretive design experiential interpretive design is very much forward with and how we work with our clients is very much about challenging them a lot of the times and we listen and then we probe and then we challenge because so often they want to jump to how are we going to do this and we said well first of all <laughs> that's why we're planning and designing 
we have to, you know, really find out what is it that we're trying to accomplish here for whom, and it will vary. So, uh, back to the exhibit uh, design, your specific question. Um, I had, uh, I had the exact same feeling. I have seen so many extremely de- poorly designed displays, and I wonder what was the point of, you know, what were you trying to do? Because all they end up doing is handing out stuff that gets thrown in the garbage can. Now, Lars mentioned about action, something that would be um, motion. It always attracts people. Color, lots of color always attracts people. Somebody doing something. (laughs) If you want to attract a crowd, juggle. Um, But I used something that, a technique that also fit in with what my purpose was. So at this point, I had a booth. I was with the Capital City Recreation Park. I was trying to encourage a greater awareness of what the park offered, because a lot of people just only went to certain areas of the park, and that's all they knew. So we said, okay, how do we get that, but in an action-oriented way? And we created, you know, in the, um, I forget what they're called, like Wheel of Fortune or something, where you spin it, and it makes this da 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 So it has sound, it has motion, it has color. And we divided that that big wheel into different sections. Some One was history. One was uh, nature, you know, that kind of thing. One was snow sh- outdoor winter recreation activities. And so as they spun that, we had a, we had a, like a trivial pursuit wheel. And so each of those, depending on what character they get, and then we had a free bonus thing, right? So in the, and we had a little bell that we'd ring. Um, so we were gathering a crowd. Like we had way more crowds than anyone else had because they were just standing there waiting for someone to approach them. And uh, so anyway, that's just a, a little example of, of the types of things that we can bring when we work with people, because we have had over 100 years of experience between the three of us in lots of different fields. And so I think what one of our strengths is, too, that uh, just working with people as a sounding board or as a uh, idea stimulator um, and, and really uh, to get them to think about why are they doing this in the first place? So you don't jump to the conclusion that you need a trail or you need a booth. Um, And that's how I think what our big strength is. And as Lars said, many people are finding that quite unique because consultants don't do that. Coaches, which is what we do, we're Mm -hmm. trying to help people do their own plan. And, uh, but our role is to to provide those those questions and get them thinking, Mm -hmm. challenging them to sort of start to look at it in a different way. So how do you, uh, well, you just explained how you work with people, but w- when clients come to you, what are they usually looking for? Yeah, so, so mostly they are looking for for consultants to, de- in my case, to, de- to develop interpretive plans for an exhibition or for a self-guided trail. Um, we also offer training, so that's another um, field and it becomes unfortunately it becomes less so and i hear this from colleagues too so 10 20 years ago we offered one two-day trainings uh three-day trainings um and that was just normal today if you ask somebody okay you know it would be good to bring everybody together have a workshop and what do you think and they say well no problem you know two hours yeah well four hours now that's not going to work maybe three but that's at most, so um, yeah, so so they um, they're looking for a consultant to put, put together a plan. Problem there is that, uh, and we do this occasionally. If you don't set it up for them, if you don't get the job to set it up, then uh, it gets uh, watered. So it, um, it it gets changed uh, during the process of um, of setting it up. Um, and that's really a lot of times, as Bill said some time ago here, uh, it's in the details too. So, and uh, and also a lot, uh, quite a few times they just drop the stuff that activates people uh, because it might demand a little more attention. It might demand some extra time to spend to involve people. So we we have usually a very extensive consultation on site. Uh, to get a first-hand impression. Uh, we go there not just once, but usually two or three times. Uh, we talk to a lot of people. We try to get um, literature about uh, a cultural or a natural place. 
And this all takes time, which in most projects, that's my experience, is not available anymore. So they are expecting you, for example, uh, I was doing a consultation for a 12 million euro visitor center in southern Germany, and they wanted us to enter a competition, a design competition. So you can be part of this. We asked seven companies. And um, if you are among the three top rated companies with your plan, you can present. And then you might be the one to win the, the thing. And this is not working. It's not working for us because we just cannot invest all the time without being paid. And it doesn't work for the the site, which is even worse because um, they don't get the product they actually need. But what they then get is, as I said, the latest stuff from the wreck of the museum fairs. And I'm going to jump in and present another side, sort of like why EID was created um, and where Mike and I focus a little bit differently than uh, than Lars in the sense that Lars is uh, like Mike and I are semi-retired. Lars is full time, uh, needs to get an income through interpretive design. And so uh, from our case, um, we did happen to get a three year project, but that's not what we're looking for. Uh, and I just reflect on that. Uh, the three year project was a uh, truly a site plan. Uh, for a, uh, it was called Métis Crossing, and it was a historic living heritage site undergoing major renovation and a, a huge new visitor center that they'd never had before. And they needed to relook at the whole place from uh, beginning, uh, you know, to, to what the total experience was going to be from parking lot, from entrance to parking lot to actual place. But that's that's not what we EID is really looking for. We're trying to spend our time as again, because of the short term nature of most places, they don't have time. And so we're saying, hey, if you need a, I think I used the word sounding board before, but if you need some constructive feedback, you need a, a short appraisal of a project, it could be, you know, an old trail. It could be a new trail. It could be one gallery. It could be your, uh, what we really liked actually was a welcome uh, and in this case, the, 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 you know how to look at welcoming and orientation of your site, and how do you greet the guests? And we created a webinar. So not only are we having a blog post where we provide information for people, but uh, for free, but uh, we've done some free webinars. Uh, but to take that into the paid side of things as an entrepreneur, because we do like to get paid at the same time. We worked with a professional development for a provincial parks here in my, my home province. They hired us to do a customized two one-hour sessions back-to-back. Um, and well, I say back-to-back, I mean week-to-week, about giving them ideas around welcoming. So that was something was, that was very specific to that group. They needed to relook at, a bunch of them had different visitor centers. They wanted to relook at how are they greeting their guests? And were they doing it in a, an effective and impactful way? And were they looking at a 4-H type of person? Or were they just looking at the head? What did they want their people to have a takeaway? And how do they want them to feel? And of course, we know that right now, inclusivity and equity and diversity, very important concepts. And a lot of our places weren't designed with that in mind 20 years ago. And so we have to kind of rejuvenate some of this stuff. And so I think that's where I like and I, uh, to, to get involved is that uh, a very short-term uh, help. And uh, we had a session with actually Nature, Center, uh, Nature Momentum Group in Holland uh, online. So we're not there in place in person. And they had specific issues that they wanted to address. And um, they had a marketing plan. And they wanted us to give them feedback on the park marketing plan. And they didn't have really an interpretive plan yet. And we were saying the interpretive plan should be guiding the marketing plan, not the other way around, which is what it so often occurs. But in, it, even with that in mind, we still said, you know, there were certain things we pointed out, certain things that they needed to think about that were missing in the marketing plan. And one of the key things was, going back to what Lars was saying about the who, it was, uh, what would you show a friend? 
what's the perfect day? And this comes out of Steve's book too. He talks about a perfect day exercise. And so when you look and you say, are we being successful? Are we getting, you know, whatever we want across to the visitor? It's sort of like at the end of a day or a half day, depending on what your average dwell time is, uh, what do you want people to take away with them in their head, their hands, their heart, in their hunger, in their spirit? Um, and so that was like a, a blinding glimpse of the obvious for them. They'd never asked themselves that question. They'd never thought about, you know, like if they only have a, that three-hour time period, they only have a two-hour time period. What are the main things they really wanted people to take away with them? And they were already into, you know, the how, and they hadn't really gone back to saying, well, you know, first of all, what is it? And then, then you decide what are the best methods to get that accomplished? And in some cases, it's how you've set up the welcome, you know, and it's actually sometimes even because we talked about the marketing plan, it's back in the person's sofa in their living room. How have you set them up to um, the expectations? Because we actually had a group in Kentucky that we did a, um, a little case study webinar on and it was they had certain issues and we were this we were, uh, you know, hired to just kind of give some initial feedback. And we were pointing out that, you know, some of the issues they had were management issues should really it's too late to start handling them at the site. You need to handle it before you get there. And so that's where the interpreter has to work with the marketing people and the promotion people. And they weren't. They were kind of in all these silos. And so that's uh, there's so many different ways that I guess we would like to, to, to help others. Uh, and it can be a very short term thing. And it can be as a long term thing. Like I said, we got a three hour, sorry, a three year. Now, it was mm -hmm. staggered, of course, like we would meet with the experience development coordinator on the phone once a month. And we would say, you know, like you're, they were doing the plan. We were just guiding them and giving them, the, you know, the, the right framework out of the experiential, uh, the interpretive design book. And then we would give them feedback and they would go ahead and they'd write a little bit more of the plan. But uh, because we said this plan will be something you want to use. It's not going to sit on the shelf because we didn't write it. You wrote it. And now yeah. you're invested in it. And uh, we also very, very keen on stakeholder involvement and thinking about who needs to have a say in this plan. It shouldn't just be the consultant and it shouldn't just be the consultant and the initial interpretive staff. There's a lot of other people that need to be involved at at least a beginning stage and sometimes a middle stage and an and almost end stage. And we don't see that happening. And we advocate for that over and over again that, you know, there's, and we were very lucky in the, in that Métis Crossing project, they agreed with us and they got people that were, we had uh, academics, we had uh, youth, we had elders, and a lot of times the youth are left out. And that's a tragedy when you consider, you know, what's your, your market? And they say, our market's going to be, you know, 80% children in schools. Well, they better, you better have some representation from those areas on your planning team. And a lot of times they don't. Um, anyway, so that's, that's yeah. uh, my four cents worth. What I'm hearing is that what EID provides is a place, a safe place for teams to think through all the things that they know they need to think through. You know, maybe there's been lots of unspoken stuff that that everybody recognizes that should be discussed. And so you give them that space without forcing them to commit to something big, maybe bigger than what they need right off the bat. I mean. Yeah, and I think I think we also provide them with uh, saving lots of money. I, I would like to, to mention that at this point too, because it, it does make me angry to a degree to see that millions and millions of euros, dollar and whatever currency uh, is wasted because uh, it's given over to some architects who sometimes have never even developed something like an exhibition who uh, who are at least in germany some, you know if they have a name they can set up the rules on how a particular building uh, is supposed to be used where to put brochures what to put on the wall what not to put on the wall um, and i think this is just 
it just makes me when I'm talking to these to museum directors and they have a museum that was just renovated for 55 million euro and I ask them uh, in to what degree they brought in potential visitors and the voice of the visitors doing visitor evaluation they just said to me visitor research we have no money you know 55 million euro i cannot accept that and it's the same with uh, so many places with almost all places uh, i i come across they they don't spend anything on on something like market research and uh, Anybody from tourism, I would expect, knows that data is so important. And we're not talking about 100,000 or more euros, uh, you know, to do this. But if you spend um, 50 million euro or let's say 10 million euro only, then I think we can expect that they spend something like, I don't know, or or that they have a part-time staff uh, member, even better, to do this and to bring in the voice of the visitor. So you provide coaching services, very helpful coaching services for conversations large and small, for projects large and small. You offer free webinars for people to come learn with you and to start conversations with you. What's next for EID? Uh, well, we also do conference presentations because uh, it, what it all about is, and we haven't, I didn't actually mention this yet, is that um, we really want to raise awareness of the interpretive design book, The Dance of Experience by Steve Van Mater, raise awareness of its existence. And it's just, like I said, it's so full of rich information that could be very beneficial to people. And yet the Institute self-published, they aren't a marketing body. There's not a lot. It's a not-for-profit. They don't have a lot of money to get it out and to let people know. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of in oblivion. Uh, and so we kind of said, okay, that's one of our major roles is to get out the principles and practices of this book. And so one, we'd like to really encourage people to to purchase the book because we think it's just, it could really make a huge impact and a huge influence on the interpretive profession. And they could be so much more influential because of that. Um, but the other thing, so uh, we've done conferences to do that. We've done the blog posts about doing that. And we've done, some, like I said, some professional consultations. But what, we, what we're kind of heading more towards is maybe a curriculum, a bunch of courses, short-term courses available that would deal with different topics, each of the segments of the visitor journey. Like we said, it goes from kind of that welcoming orientation component all the way to the exit experience. A lot of people totally ignore, you got them there and then they forget about them. They do their thing and then they exit. And there's so many things that should be done at at part of the exit experience. It should be an experience, not just to kick you out the door. So it's about looking at each of those components and we would have like a, maybe a one hour seminar, discussion, forum. So we're looking at different ways that we can get uh, this network of people to help each other. Again, not just from our standpoint, this one, uh, the two webinars that we did this year that we just started and did, uh, it was, a, we had about 35 people, I think on there and everybody was prepared to kind of throw in their advice and and their experience from their site because it was from all over North America and we'd like to get more of that stuff going and and that that idea that you can improve your profession by taking uh, a series of courses but on your time and uh, then you would have maybe a, a little self-study component and then we could review it and give you feedback and that kind of stuff so there's stuff around that that we're still uh, working on developing. Lars, how can people learn more about EID coaching and also get a copy of this interpretive book that you've shared? I think best way to get acquainted with EID is uh, go to our website and uh, sign up for the, for the blog. And uh, I have to admit that it's especially Bill and Mike who are um, active in that regard because I'm, as Bill said, I'm still in the in the in the working field, so to say. 
But um, that's uh, certainly the first uh, thing to do. And the other is to um, get a copy of the book, read it, uh, just, you know, exchange with uh, friends and colleagues about its contact, spread, uh, spread it, maybe write a literature review for uh, magazines you've signed up for, um, mention it at conferences, put it out for people to to have a look, um, and start developing your own examples uh, based on the principles outlined uh, in the book. So that would certainly, um, uh, all of this would certainly uh, support our activities from EID. And there's a link to the, to, in order to purchase the book th through our website also. Um, and uh, putting ideas into practice was, I, uh, we had, a, I think, four blog posts on that uh, because um, the book, it's, it's challenging to read. Yeah, and you can't read it all at once because it's, it's like 280 pages. It's an extremely well-designed book. It's fun. Um, but there's so much in there. You got to take it in measured amounts and people would get back in touch with them. They say, well, can I see an example of, of these things in action? Well, that's part of the issue is, and that's one of the reasons why we were so happy that we did that project with Métis Crossing over three years, because we actually were able to do a matrix, which is talked about an experience matrix, an outcome matrix in the book, but Steve's just kind of thrown out some examples and it's not an actual matrix that was ever done in a site. So, um, and we have other parts of the book that are like that. And we'd like to get case studies for different components. Uh, we'd love to have a site that actually can take a very specific thing and do the Amore matrix for an actual site. So we'd love to be able to work with a group to do that. Uh, and, um, so yes, it, there's a lot of putting ideas into practice that we want to do and then write it up as we did as blog posts. So people wanted to check out about uh, how that whole the initial process of planning and the initial process of coming up with an outcome matrix, then uh, you can read about that uh, in, our, uh, in the blog. And people can find your blog at eidcoaching.com and also learn how they can purchase a copy of the book on the same website. Thank you so much for being on the show today, for introducing us to EID Coaching, to the, the resources that you have on your website and how you help people move their own interpretive practices forward. To learn more about experiential interpretive design, visit the show notes for links to the EID website, and other resources mentioned during this episode. And don't forget that part two of this two-part episode will publish later this week. I sit down with Mike Mayer to learn more about the environmental education program that inspires the work that he, Bill, and Lars do at EID. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time.